Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. These actors come to you dead, desiccated, piles of driftwood, gnawed by abusive parents and alcoholism, filled with false pride and edamame. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, according to a recent study, Japanese men are obsessed with tickling porn, with 10% of all porn searches in Japan featuring the word tickling. So now I'm confused, because I thought you were Argentinian. <laughs> you know, I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. I divide sexual fetishes into two categories. Ones are ones that I can intuitively understand how somebody would get there. We're like, it's not right. my thing, but like, I get it, you know? Like, like my husband wants me to breastfeed him. Yeah, yeah. That, like, well, you know, no. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> tickling, I can't, I can't grok that. Like, I can't get, I, I don't, I could, I could understand spanking and whipping and bondage. Like, I, I could understand the, probably the weirdest like physical stuff but tickling what is that what kind of evolutionary process would have given rise to that <laughs> you know it re it's a phenomenon apparently someone recommended this documentary called tickling uh, i have not seen it but me. i've heard good things about it yeah i've heard good things about it too it is a it is a strange phenomenon and right. so the individual differences when it comes to tastes in porn as we're about to talk about in our opening segment we have a big episode today um, yeah almost too big it's it's too big <laughs> not that just for the record not that there's anything wrong with tickling porn <laughs> no for our listeners who are into it like you're in good company especially amongst i mean 10 percent uh, is a lot like yeah. more than 10 percent of pornhub searches by young japanese men I don't know how he splits young That's, or whatever. That, but. I almost don't. So we're going to talk about an interview with this guy, uh, Seth Stevens Davidowitz, who looked at all the Google searches for porn and sort of assembled some uh, interesting data about people's porn habits and their sexual inclinations in general. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about in the first segment. And in the second segment, we're going to talk about debunking this would shift a little bit maybe i don't know is it a shift right uh debunking arguments and genealogical arguments when it comes to to ethics and we'll explain what those terms mean in the second segment but that's what we're going to talk about then but we saw this 
interview on Vox.com, and we thought this is kind of in our wheelhouse. Porn, yeah, so this is, tickling, breastfeeding. So this this guy, um, Seth Stevens Davidowitz, wrote, this is, I guess, part of what he um, reports in his book called Everybody Lies, um, which is more broadly about like using big data to tell what yeah. people really care about. But, you know, the gist is this. Like he says, look, all these sex surveys um, about about sexual interests and desires, like they are all like more so than probably a lot of domains. They're they're all pretty flawed. Like if you're relying on people to honestly report what they like. But porn, I think he compellingly argues, is like you wouldn't keep watching something you weren't into. Like porn has that feature right. where like it, it's not like you're reading a conservative newspaper if you're liberal or vice versa where you're just like, oh, like I'm interested in what the other side. No, like I just wouldn't watch tickling porn. Like I would just stop. Like I just. <laughs> it would just never, it wouldn't get clicked on except maybe, right, maybe out of curiosity. Like what the fuck is this <laughs> right. or whatever. <laughs> a pretty good marker of what you're into. So he summarizes it. And this is an interview by Sean Illing. They summarize it. More gay men in the closet than we think. Many men prefer overweight women to skinny women, but don't act on it because of social pressure. That sorry, that one yeah. will get us to a point that I want to make about about what it really means to like. So yeah. I agree. I yeah. think I think we're on, <laughs> we had the same thought reading. That. <laughs> married women disproportionately worried. Like a big Google search for married women is is my husband gay. <laughs> A lot of women, straight women, watch lesbian porn. That's awesome, except those that, that statistic does not include my own. <laughs> Have you looked at her search history? That's the point of them. I mean, if like, then it's really perverse because she knows that that would not be a problem for me. <laughs> uh, and then finally, that porn featuring violence against women is way more popular among women than it is among men. So that's one of those. Yeah, this is where we have to read the book because I, I am curious what, what it means. Um, if it's just S&M porn where, where the women are, are bound. That's like, that's totally phrased to be like a, like the headline that like makes people yeah like, oh, see? <laughs> but like, if it's just, yeah. Anyway, well, yeah, no, that's to, that's yeah. right. Like, in some ways, it wouldn't be that surprising. Like, it's not like women didn't disproportionately buy Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Like, right. That's... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, okay, here's the one that, like, I... So, Seth Stevens Davidowitz says, there are still sexual preferences that people hide today, even in socially liberal places. About one in 100 porn searches are for the elderly. <laughs> Yeah, hundreds of thousands of young men are predominantly attracted to elderly women, <laughs> but very few young men are in relationships with elderly women. And maybe this actually like so there is like a question there about whether or not these men wish they were in relationships with elderly women. Like, yeah, and what is and it similar with the overweight with one. with the overweight one? Right. So yeah. is it just that um, you sort of look for stuff that you couldn't normally find in your everyday life? Like, is it is there a push? Is, is porn causing a push for the weirder and weirder? Like, um, so in some sense, I think porn creates a preference that you might not have known that you had. It's like, uh, 
if you've never eaten lots of different foods and all of a sudden every day you have at your disposal every single kind of food from the whole world. Like your taste, you might actually be raised in Minnesota and develop a taste for Chinese food from this particular province in China, right? Here's what he says. Porn featuring overweight women is surprisingly common among men, but dating sites data says that almost all men try to date skinny women, so they actually don't try to date the people they're attracted to. And he says that this is inefficient. There's all these single men and single overweight women who would be sexually compatible, but they don't date. And when the man tries and fails to date a skinny woman, dumb, because he's not even as attracted to her as he would be to an overweight woman. Okay, so... (laughs) Well, it's because of the social pressure of it. Like, that's the reason that they're not. and, and, And Illing says that's a tragedy. Yeah, so... Okay, so I do not know author Seth Stevens Davidovitz at all. But there seems to be... A, uh, a lack of subtlety in his understanding of what desire is. Right. To call it inefficient is a weird thing because I, I there is a way in which I believe that those men are, it is also right to say they don't desire overweight women. The social pressure, I don't think what it's doing is making them go out with skinny girls and the whole time they're like, damn, if only society let me date like overweight women like if they really wanted to they could totally do it and they would they actually would um like or at least they would you know on tinder or something where it's like only what like you know one night stand stuff there is something about desire that seems to be missed in this like very confident i agree yeah like that that it doesn't just take into account what you're sexually attracted to on porn Right. Right. I was just thinking this as as you could rephrase that. A lot of men are clearly from porn searches are sexually attracted to babysitters. Right. Right. <laughs> and there are a lot of babysitters who are attracted to. So it's so inefficient that there are all these babysitters who are, are like attracted to the idea of hooking up with the person they're babysitting for and the men who are attracted to their babysitters. And yet like social pressures being and pathologies being what they are, like they don't actually get together. And that's it's sad. Big, it's, like, it's a big, it's a big stigma against, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, you wouldn't it would sound ridiculous if you put it like that. And so so here's what what I think is true which is there is very, to me, a very obvious difference between what you fantasize about and what arouses you versus what you actually want to do. What you desire, yeah. What you you desire to do in a real way where, like, you can watch... I bet you there are a lot of, of so one of the stats here, like that you mentioned, is women like lesbian porn disproportionately. Sorry, compared to men who who would uh, look at gay porn, it's, there's more women. And I, I I don't think all of those women would actually want to have sex with a woman. May, maybe they would, right. but like you know, there are plenty of people who would love who love watching, say, like threesomes, but who don't themselves want it for whatever reason. And like, I don't disbelieve that they don't want it. Like, you know, it's not like, I'm like, just admit to yourself that you want to fuck your Latina maid, you know? It's like, no, it's just it's fantasy. And there is, there's a, I think, a reason we can explore things in fantasy that we would never want to explore in real life. Right. That's um, kind of the point of fantasy in, in large part. It's yeah, it would be it's sort of like saying, well, look, I have really good behavioral evidence that people want to fall from large heights because of roller coasters. Like and 
I, I think that's a, it's a different thing. Like, it's just a different thing. I would argue that, or sorry, I would argue that, <laughs> I don't know why my voice was like like Bobby and the Brady Bunch, like, like just really, cracking really, right there. When it's time to change. <laughs> it's great. I would Greg. argue. It was Greg. Kinds of, like, often the kinds of things that I want to do have a very loose fitting match with the kinds of things that I just, look at. Just like your points. Um, yeah. Um, the, there is right, and so maybe though, would you agree with that? It's it's a good it's a good marker of what you would never be interested in, though. Yes, and like yeah. I've always thought, I have fairly vanilla tastes when it comes to porn. That's racist. This That's this racist. is like this totally. Uh, makes me think that that's probably true this whole thing of like breastfeeding like the idea that i want someone to breastfeed me you say Steven that now, Davidovich you... says i don't think the conclusion to draw is that people are that people are weird we're all weird it's like no that i i, I i'm not sure i agree like wanting a woman to breastfeed you as an adult is weird this is by the way very popular in india this you you just want to say it, it is true it, it's true that it is weird uh, uh, but here's a thought experiment is anything that you look at now um something that you 15 years ago would be put off by like you'd be like wait like he looks at that um yeah like I'm trying. I actually. I mean, the answer is no. I was trying to come up with a good joke, like something, like totally <laughs> fucked up, but I couldn't uh, even think of that. That's how <laughs> vanilla my tastes are. No, it really isn't. Like, like my porn tastes haven't evolved, partly because porn has sort of given me. Like, it used to be that you couldn't get what you wanted on porn, and now you can. And then it's right. like, uh, so, so there was. It was just yeah. there before. I think it's kind of like what you said, where like the, here's where the um, the analogy to ice cream might be good. Where like I, I do like vanilla, and in the days where like Neapolitan was the only option, like I would eat the vanilla of the three. Right. Um, and and now there's like cookies and cream and raw cookie dough and and chi- like all with a vanilla base that I never stray from. Like yeah. I prefer vanilla base, <laughs> right? But like, there's some stuff that like my 15 year old self would have been like, really? Like that's that's where you went with that? Eh, yeah, yeah. Huh. Good, good on you. You know, like uh, <laughs> um, so so it's like a, a refining of uh, right. But what I am surprised by, and one question that I have from reading this is, how narrow or wide are people's searches? Like how much right. do people actually move between Stray. whatever S and M and and babysitter ver, uh, versus anal and like big dick or whatever it is that people are looking at? How much movement is there, and how much do people just end up like, no, nope, this is what I want? So I'm in the latter category. Like, no, this yeah. is great. You know, every once in a while I go through some like existential crisis of like, this is boring. Like, You're like, I, I like something small, new, but fat. <laughs> I was a little like that thing about the violent like because I've never oh, yeah, been yeah. into violent porn or anything like that like even real anything seriously S&M so the fact that that's more popular among women is in some ways I feel like comforting for me like <laughs> I always thought I was just too bland as yeah. a person as yeah, a yeah, no, I, I know what you mean 
Um, uh, the, yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean without saying too much. Um, <laughs> the, there's one other thing that I want to talk about, which is that, um, <laughs> that women are far more worried about their husband being gay than is probably appropriate given the, so he estimates yeah. from Google searches, the rate of male, male homosexual uh, men is about 5% of the population. So this it makes it actually like, um, that women are, are way too worried than uh about their husband's yeah. homosexuality and that men should be more worried which turns out should have published this 20 years ago <laughs> exactly. um <laughs> a little too little too late for little you too right? little too late fucker <laughs> um uh and he says women are eight times more likely to ask google if their husband is gay than if he's an alcoholic and 10 times more likely to ask google if their husband is gay than if he is depressed which like yeah. fine like that's a good rhetorical point but, like, you kind of know he's an alcoholic. Right. <laughs> like, why are you asking Google? My wife doesn't have to Google, like, like ask <laughs> right. Google whether I'm yeah. an alcoholic. <laughs> is, my, is my husband a Jew? No, it's obvious. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, I look forward to the book. But that is, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I agree. But, like, the fact that 10% of women do it or something and only 2% of those women have gay, I guess that right. is, even that makes sense. If you thought there was a one in five chance you had, and I'm not saying being yeah, yeah. gay is a disease, right. but, like, that you had a disease, <laughs> you would then, like, Google to see if, or if your wife had a disease. Well, right, the amount disease. of people who Google probably for herpes probably yeah. far outweighs the number of people who have the other thing that it says i think anal sex will pass vaginal sex in that porn. is a hilarious <laughs> i like his projections my data models suggest that anal sex will pass vaginal sex in <laughs> porn in within three years like what what models are these is this like 538 but like exactly for porn? like he's the he's the <laughs> What's the name of that book? Moneyball. Moneyball. Yeah, yeah. So this is what? this is the Moneyball of porn, where he's like, "Put your money in anal." I told you. Trust me. You're putting all that money. You're wasting all that money on these big salary vaginal porn positions, where you could just be getting for a lot cheaper. Uh, you heard it here first. F- futures market for lube. Uh, <laughs> We will take a little piece of your action. Remember, remember us on Patreon when you're <laughs> raking in all the money. Uh, breastfeeding, I don't know. Like maybe it's hot. Yeah. I mean, I guess he says thirty percent of what people watch ex- exclusively is what you, you would, would be disgusted. By. Exactly. Which is, a, yeah. I wonder if that's an actual projection of. So when I when he said that, I was like, wait, is that is that just the case that like take a hundred percent of porn categories like um that are watched like this is the and this is the stuff that you find disgusting like here's the amount of people who watch that stuff routine like is that like an actual um because yeah, i find it hard get that number yeah i find it hard to, to yeah how does he know it doesn't surprise me like if all of a sudden some woman is like breastfeeding somebody i'm out like i'm done with that wait i don't know if we're done is this part of the segment or not i, I don't know but like, we can always decide after.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Um, just like to thank you guys once again for all your wonderful support. We obviously got a lot of, of interaction and feedback from listeners um, from this past episode. Uh, so I, hopefully everybody's enjoyed that. It's kind of difficult to, uh, conversations at some points, but like one of the things I have to say, which is really in the place to say it is in support because that's where I feel pretty supported by our audience that everybody, whatever side you were on, or if you were on a side, like a lot of people told us that they appreciated that, that we had like the difficult conversation. Right. Like that made, that made a huge difference. So if you would like to contact us, you can email us very bad wizards at gmail.com. You can tweet to us at very bad wizards or at peas at Tamler. You've um, been very active on Twitter. I lately. over the holiday, I like I cause every time like what is it? Get out! They pull me back in. <laughs> they I was getting pulled in, and I was really, really yeah. I was trying to engage. Trollable, a little trollable. You could troll Dave, David. Like if your goal, if your dream has always been to troll David on Twitter, like I don't know how long this is going to last, but now's your chance. Yeah, trollable is right. I try. I tried really hard, but Twitter's just not the right forum to, to have like these conversations. So, so I was trying not. You to... You did a good job. I was, I'd say overall, for somebody who was trollable, like sometimes you'd respond to something, and I'd just be thinking, why, why? Yeah, I could feel. I could feel the the long reach of your of your scolding. But I've been there. We've all been. <laughs> it there. was actually a way to spend the fourth. My daughter's gone. I was bored. Yeah. So thank you to everybody. Uh, uh, for contacting us and for for engaging with us. If you want to not just contact us, but support us in more tangible ways, you can go to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash verybadwizards, or you can get there from our uh, website and click on support. And there on our website, uh, verybadwizards.com, you'll see that you can support us in other ways, uh, PayPal, um, or you can click on an Amazon link and just purchase like you would normally and we get a little piece of it until they cut us off like they did sam harris you can leave comments on facebook we've had good dialogue there uh tamler is actually more active there because of his age it's a generational thing i'm more trollable <laughs> on, on facebook. facebook that's true yeah and uh finally you can check us out on instagram instagram.com slash very bad wizards which is run by liza who you hear every day, every yeah, week. She's on been the a little lax lately. I don't think she even posted, but she's going to get back on it. Hopefully. I think you should take over uh, every once in a while. You know, just put it on your phone. Have her teach you how to how to do Instagram, and then you guys maybe, can do it together. I maybe I should. <laughs> or you're already on it. Why don't you do it? Why do I have to run every social media thing? That we do? <laughs> Speaking of Patreon, we had ev- twice a year our listeners get to suggest episodes. Our Patreon supporters get to suggest episode topics. And then our VIP Patreon supporters get to vote on a topic that we'll do for a subsequent episode. And we just had all the topics suggested, and we just had the vote. We talked about this last episode, what the finalists were. The winner is, and I wouldn't have predicted this, I don't know about you, varieties of intelligence. Um, And I think part of the, you know, even as much as we want to get away from, like, politically sensitive (laughs) issues, one of the things that made people vote for this was 
that you said you would even be willing <laughs> yeah. to talk about like genetic differences in terms of intelligence. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I so, can't. I, I have to. I have to. Yeah, own you it. have to back that <laughs> up. I'm. I'm looking forward to just standing back and letting you like hoist it, yourself up on the scaffold. It'll be hard because I'm Hispanic and sort of by nature less intelligent than you. Um, but right. I'll try. Right. <laughs> I'll try really hard. You can't beat Ashkenazi Jews unless you're into tickling. <laughs> so thank you, yeah, to all of our Patreon supporters, all the people who support us in all those different ways. The Patreon support recently has been incredibly gratifying. And also, oh, one other thing. In addition to that topic, that won't be our next episode, but our next episode will ha- will feature Robert Wright, who longtime listeners of this podcast will know is one of the people who uh, kind of inspired me to go into philosophy. His book, The Moral Animal, was I was a sort of a seminal piece that you know, at a time of my life where I had no idea what I was going to do, that pointed me in this direction for very for better and for worse so i'm very excited to have him on to promote his book why buddhism is true also very influential for me too but a different book but we'll we'll get to non-zero that. so he's yeah really yeah which i haven't even yeah. read as influential as uh, the moral see. animal was <laughs> i was into him before all you know got all popular no <laughs> moral animal is first <laughs> was it yeah all right, debunking. So why did you pick this? I've been wanting to do an episode on uh, debunking arguments in general. It's always something I've been interested in. You see discussions of it pop up in my work and also in our podcasts. Like I think in our irresponsible book review, not having fully read the book of Josh Green's uh, Moral right. Tribes. But I, 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 I've been wanting to do one about just debunking and genealogical arguments in general and then I was in Germany in Bonn recently for a conference and heard a fascinating talk called a genealogy of free will and I'm hoping to talk about that in a, in a little detail shortly but let's just before we get into anything like that I'll and this is a lot of terms, debunking, genealogical, that might be unfamiliar to some of our listeners. I wanted to just give a broad introduction that can explain what a genealogical explanation of, uh, of a value or a belief would be and how this explanation may or may not shed light on whether the belief is true. So here's the idea. So let's say I have a belief right now. I believe that there are nine spiders just crawling up my arms inside my skin. I have this belief. I think that's true right now that nine spiders are just crawling up through my arms, like kind of making their way towards my brain. You know, like it would be unusual for that. So I don't know if the belief is true, but I definitely have it. But now somebody gives me a causal explanation for why I have the belief says, look, someone slipped two tabs of acid into your drink, and so you're having like a major paranoid hallucination right now. If somebody told me that, I don't know in that state how I would feel, but from an objective perspective, it seems like, okay, now I have reason to doubt 
whether that belief is true because your beliefs when you have unintentionally taken like double doses of acid, it's not a reliable process for forming true beliefs. And so having that explanation, that causal explanation for why I have the belief gives me some reason to be skeptical about whether the belief is true. It, I, I can't rule it out entirely. It could just happen to be that there are nine spiders crawling up my skin. But now I have good grounds for suspicion. So that's just in general how learning why you believe something can sometimes give you an indication of whether the belief is true or whether you have reason to doubt the belief. So some, sometimes the explanations are neutral as to that. Sometimes they are debunking, and when they're debunking, it means grounds for skepticism. And sometimes they might even be vindicating. You learn about why you have a belief, and that makes you even more convinced that the belief is true. So this is, broadly speaking, the topic that when you talk about genealogical arguments and debunking or vindicating arguments, I think what we want to talk about and the couple things that we read on this issue um, involve value judgments and moral beliefs. With value judgments and moral beliefs, things are definitely not as simple because whether you regard an explanation for why you have a moral belief as debunking or vindicating or entirely neutral often depends on other controversial assumptions. Um, but, and this will be the last thing I'll say by way of introduction, here's how some debunking arguments about value judgments would work. So let's say you have this judgment and this strong feeling that homosexuality is wrong, right? Let's say you now find out the reason you have that feeling and make that judgment is because of your deeply religious upbringing. Like you were, I don't know, in some Southern Baptist community where they taught that, and that just got grilled into you from the time you were a kid to the time you went away to college and were enlightened by SJWs. But you've also not just been enlightened by SJWs, but by new atheists. You've come to doubt that your religious upbringing, that the, that the the religious training is reflecting anything real out there in the world, now you have reasons to be maybe, arguably, suspicious of a particular judgment that you still have about the moral wrongness of homosexuality. Because the whole reason you have it is because it was part of a tradition that you now reject as a whole, even if there's some residue left over in terms of some of your particular judgments or beliefs. Right. So I think uh, I think that, uh, and we should say what we read, all right? Yeah. Um, we'll put links to this. Two, two articles. One, a book review by John Doris of Jesse Prinz's book on, I don't know, do you have the title? Emotional yeah. Construction of Morals. The emotional construction of morals. So the other one is evolutionary debunking arguments by Guy Kahan, a uh, philosopher at Oxford. Let me just say, I think psychologists uh, often make these arguments. They we just don't don't often know that that's what we're doing. Yeah, right? I think so like, your like disgust work is often about that. Is often <clears throat> is often used it, it, to debunk. Um, and I think that that 
uh, one of the reasons I, I like this topic is it makes explicit, I think, what's often tacit in people's right. descriptions of the psychological work. And it's not at all clear what the implications are for some of the psychological work. These are, it's especially tricky, and as you said, in, in, the, in the cases of evaluative judgment, so, so moral right and wrong, or, or just tastes, right, uh, or values. Because y- you can use these debunking arguments, you can try to use them for other forms of knowledge, like reasoning, and we, maybe we can get into that. Um, but but there are special reasons why we it's already hard to know whether there's a right answer in the in the moral domain or in, in an evaluative domain um, whether you believe there is a right like a fact of the matter and if there is a fact of the matter whether or not we have the right ones like it's just slipperier so debunking arguments I think have more power in that can I just give a brief summary of this talk that I heard on the concept of yeah. free will. Uh, which which will be the fir- first I'm hearing of it. Yeah, right. Thanks exactly. The, I haven't told you about this prep. either. I, and, you know, neither of us are big fans of attending talks at a conference. <laughs> uh, but this one, was, I, I was gripped by it. It's by a professor named Forrester who splits time between the University of Chicago and, and Bonn. And it's a work in progress, so... This is my and my recap of it. It's not something that's been published yet. Essentially, he starts with two observations about free will and a, and a particular kind of incompatibilist notion of free will, this kind of free will, this concept of free will that is somehow separate from all these, uh, your kind of cultural and social circumstances and, and maybe even your genetic circumstances. He notes that this is a very, and this is something obviously I've argued too, this is a very culturally local and and somewhat recent historical way of thinking about freedom. And you don't find it, say, in Homer. You don't find that conception of free will and you don't find this idea that that kind of freedom is necessary for moral responsibility. You don't find it in Homer. You don't find it in many cultures today across the world. You find it in cultures which have a very particular kind of tradition that traces back to the West. And he traces it back. He says, all right, let, let's see why we might have this conception of free will. And so he, he, he looks at the various places where it makes an appearance. And one of them is in Plato. Plato had this idea of this freedom that's, that's located in your reason and that all these other things like your desires and your appetites and your sense of honor and those kinds of things, those are something that are trying to restrict your freedom, but through your reason you can keep those things under control and exercise your freedom. So Plato is one place where it makes an appearance in, in uh, a dialogue like the Gorgias, but then especially in the Stoics you find this idea of freedom, that freedom lies in your ability to remain completely uninfluenced by the external world. You find your freedom when you have detached yourself from the whims and the accidents and all the various things that the external world can throw at you. When, when that won't affect you, is when you can truly be said to be free according to the Stoic conception. And what he says is, well, it's, it's interesting that this is how people think of freedom, given that that's not how people have always thought of it. And he says, 
one thing that you notice is this conception of freedom pops up during times where people's political freedom is threatened. So political freedom just being the freedom from interference from a tyrant or some sort of totalitarian ruler. This is a kind of uncontroversial freedom that we sometimes have and sometimes don't, right? This idea of freedom as a kind of inner citadel, this only emerges when political freedom is threatened. And the way it em tends to emerge is interesting. Like, So he points to Plato and the Gorgias as one discussion. It's like the people who are being subjugated, the people whose political freedom is being threatened, just redefine freedom so that it can't be threatened by somebody like a tyrant. All of a sudden, now freedom becomes something where if you just exercise your reason, you can control for outside events. And so no matter, and this is the Stoics too, no matter what anybody throws at you, you're still free and they can't touch you. And so, but in a, just, just to uh, wrap this up really quick, in a kind of subversion that's very reminiscent of Nietzsche and his genealogy of morals, it's like the tyrant becomes the one who isn't free because they're a slave to their appetites and their passions, whereas the person who is being oppressed and subjugated, they are the ones who are genuinely free. So it's a kind of revenge on the people, on your oppressors, to, to have this conception of free will as true freedom. I mean, that's super interesting, a reading. But I can't help, though, but think that the whole claim about it arising under political oppression can't be right <laughs> like why like, like the amount because the amount of political oppression certainly has been like it's so like people have been oppressed by tyranny for far longer and through far more domains than the west it's like it still is the case that you don't see it oh no no, no. like right he's just talk it, it doesn't always uh arise no under no but to say that it's a cause to say that it's a cause well, you know, there are other conditions that have to be in place in addition to that. So is it really the case, though, that, like, under no coercion, nobody has, like, these notions? Like, I, I don't know. It seems like a, a pretty big leap. Like, Well, I mean, he gave, it's not like, like, this was a long paper where he gave a ton of evidence. But I will say that there were a lot of incompatibilist philosophers in the, in the, in the crowd who heard this and had a similar kind of reaction. Well, two different kinds of reaction. One is, that can't be right, you know, without any evidence. They're not historians like you, just completely just, that can't be right, because I No, it no, no. Sound... what I'm asking for is evidence. Well, right, but I don't, I'm not the guy, and I don't have the paper in front of me. I'm just telling no, you. But yeah. no, it, it would help if you, no, it helps to hear that he had a bunch of evidence. Yeah, he had a right? ton of evidence, you, you, you know, but, but the, the tricky thing, and, and Doris talks about this with, is that it's very hard to determine whether the evidence is cherry-picking or whether the evidence, like yeah. how to determine whether that evidence is, is plausible. So that's one sort of common objection to these kinds of genealogical... De and to be clear, he meant this as a debunking argument. Like this was supposed to show yeah. why this isn't a conception of freedom that we should think is the true conception of free will. Like this is just a group of pissed off people who are being subjugated, just redefining a term that serves their own self-image, you know. 
so one reaction is, well, like anybody can do that. You know, it's a just so story. Um, yeah. Another reaction is, well, even if that is why this conception of freedom emerged, it still could be the true conception, right? You just have to, like, maybe we've been progressing, and, and one of the things we needed to progress to discover the true conception of freedom is to be oppressed. That was a silver lining to being oppressed and subjugated, is that we were able to stumble on the true conception of freedom, and to know whether we have it or not, you just have to look at the arguments, um, right. I have problems with that second. I don't, like the first one is a little hard to adjudicate. I have problems with that second objection because I think it underestimates uh, to what extent your immediate judgments about whether the arguments are good are influenced by your cultural tradition. Right. And Doris sort of talks about this this argument about uh, like moral perception. Like just seeing seeing the cat being burned and thinking that that's enough evidence that you immediately see that it's wrong for a group of teenagers to light a cat on fire. And then whether you actually do know that it's wrong or whether this is just a, a result of that, right? This is what makes these these arguments so difficult. Like you don't know whether your own processes are tainted by the very thing that is being claimed tainted the arguments. You know, again, one of the reasons it's easier, like it's it's hard to debunk geometry um, in this way. Right, where you say like what was necessary was for this particular set of social circumstances to arise, right. and that's the only reason that a square plus b squared equals c squared. Like I, well, that's the only I reason we believe that, that is like that. Right, right. Yeah, that a squared. Right. It. It wouldn't right. debunk so, it so, at all in that case, right? Exactly. You'd be like, well, like good, good on them for having like come up with that shit during those times or whatever. Um, uh, and this is where I, the the key, like the key part of all of this stuff is nobody's arguing that 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 uh, beliefs aren't caused right um and that they aren't caused by lots of lots of things but rather the key is whether or not the thing that you're saying caused it would be the sort of thing that would cause true beliefs and so in the case of say geometry you say this is actually like you know part of just this general pattern recognition faculty that we have in our brain that allows us to see lots and lots of things that turns out to be right by all the ways in which we mean is right um so it was a reliable mental process that gave rise to this and so one source of evidence like i mean geometry just works for lots of reasons but you could say like upon hearing these things other people uh, also accept them. So, like, once geometry was invented, then then other people were like, "Oh shit, that was a good point you made there, uh, Euclid." Um, and that doesn't seem to be the case for values. Well, for I some values, maybe yeah, right. For some values, it is like there's still these widespread differences that that are are hard to explain. But those those differences, and maybe we can get into this. It's not clear what the differences and similarities would even mean. But I do think that it's like a a, a, a sort of widespread use among psychologists so give an example uh, the psychology of religion does this a lot really um uh like the evolutionary uh psychology of religion which i don't just necessarily disagree with but the minute you say uh for instance um the way that people like pascal boyer have said uh the reason that you that people believe in supernatural entities is that uh well look like we have evolved faculties to see agency in the world and um, those faculties kind of overshoot, right? You see agency a little bit more than you than right. is justified, and so what you get is that we're used to talking to, for instance, people. All of a sudden, one day they die. We're kind of left perplexed. Um, 
we also we perceive agency and intentionality in the physical universe and so combine those things and now the when i'm thinking about my dead uncle the wind rustles and i think that must have been my dead uncle trying to tell me something and so you can you can see where the seeds of supernatural beliefs might be sown in the cognitive faculties um, that that may have evolved for something that has nothing to do at all with this. And so I think that when people hear that, they immediately say, oh, this is reason to believe that uh, that supernatural entities don't exist. I think like that's the natural assumption. Yeah. I think. Based on this and, kind of cognitive mistake of seeing too much agency in a world that doesn't have agency. And so, of course, if there's some big tragedy or some big huge event in the world, an earthquake, you're going to think somebody had to have caused that and that right, somebody right. becomes God. Yeah. And so, um, so I think that as you point out, like there are layers of hidden assumptions there that are required before you can conclude that. Like, I, I don't, I don't know what you think, but I don't think all debunking arguments are wrong. Um, but some of them I think really are, do undermine, but like you have to say a whole lot of other things in order to make the case that they are undermining, right? right? So let's go through what one of those assumptions is. I mean, in some ways your example is a, it's somewhat friendly to the debunking approach because you've stipulated from the outset that we attribute too much agency to the world. Yep. So, so then it, that it makes it, it seem like it's yeah. not, like this is already built on a mistake attributing too much agency to a world that doesn't have it. But so take some of the ways that people do this with disgust, right? Oh, the reason you might find a certain sexual act, say adult men breastfeeding their... <laughs> That's 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 wrong. And then the reason maybe you think it's wrong is because it's disgusting. And then they'll say, well, that if if you're disgusted by it and that's why you think it's wrong, well, then obviously it's not wrong or you don't have any good reason to think that it's wrong. And the implicit assumption there is that your disgust reactions don't track the truth of a moral judgment, that they're not a reliable right. guide towards moral judgment. Well, that's a contra like I'm not saying you can't defend it, but that is a controversial assumption that is in need of defense. That's right. And so uh, you know our, our discussions on this have turned on the the validity of those assumptions, right? So if you want to defend something like that, you have to you have to show so it, one of the one of the things that I often bring up when when talking about disgust and whether or not sort of it's a, an unreliable guide is the nature of other emotions. Something like being angry at somebody motivating you to seek out, you know, restitution or retribution or something. Um, there is something about the nature of anger that it, that makes it a bit more sort of truth tracking. That is, what it means to be angry is usually the emotional system that we have combined with the belief that somebody actually wronged you, and because the ta the explicit belief is is part of what it of the cause for anger um and when you remove that belief like if you now no longer believe that somebody wronged you you cease to be angry at them that is a a, a pretty good mechanism that's that's tracking something that we would think in moments of calmness is is a, uh, an important one right? right whether or not somebody wronged you actually does matter in, in whether or not you're going to seek out revenge for instance um and 
And the argument I've always made is that I don't think that disgust tracks cognition in that same way. That That is, as far as I can tell, the evidence is generally that there is no explicit evaluation being made, but rather it's just a response, more reflexive response to a disease cue um, that is causing your revulsion. And so because of the empirical facts of how disgust works, I think that it can actually be used as a debunking argument. But it turns on those empirical facts. Along the lines of what Nietzsche believes or like Marx or what happens when you find out that certain deeply held moral convictions have this kind of somewhat idiosyncratic cultural historical history. What does that make you think about those moral convictions? Before, you might have uh, regarded them as kind of self-evident. All men are cre- yeah. created equal or that, you know, like that individual liberty is a human right or something like that. These things that people think are so deeply true as they are like mathematical axioms or something like that. And yet if you like this was Marx's point, right? If you just broaden the scope and try to examine why you have such a deeply held conviction, it might have something to do with the economic structure of your society and the particular kind of religious and cultural tradition that you, that, that you come out of. Right. So you might say, as Nietzsche was wont to say, that Christianity it was the belief, for instance, that humility and turning the other cheek are important moral values that ought to be held is a simply a result of kind of being tricked into thinking that so that people could could rule over you without threat of of retaliation. Right. Right. So if that really is the origin of that belief, like if it really is the case that it's not that you believe this because of moral progress or something like that, but but because somebody tricked you into believing that, is that undermining uh, to that belief. And not only tricked, but it's like it made you feel better, too, because you can't do anything but turn the other cheek. So you're making it seem like it's your choice. You know, oh, turning the other cheek is actually this is what he means by slave morality. Right. It's like yeah. you're taking certain things that are forced upon you and turning them into virtues and turning the things that the oppressors are doing to you into into vices. It's, it's really almost an exact parallel with what the guy was arguing about free will. And, and what you said where it's useful for both the oppressors and the oppressed. The oppressors, right. like they're happy if you th- want to think that real freedom doesn't involve political freedom because then they can take away your rights and take away your liberty and exploit you for their ends and you won't com- bitch about it and, then, and right. you won't revolt. And it's also good for the people who are under subjugation because they have it's good for their self-image. It's good. Like it, it makes them feel like they're the winners in this game. Like, what does that tell you about those beliefs? It's interesting because the power of these arguments t- turns on the details mm-hmm. um, and and in a way that matters. And so I found it actually hard to keep focus on the big picture as to whether like debunking in general was a reliable strategy. Um, because I found myself thinking about specifics so much. Um, one thing that is in the flavor of historical debunking, but is not historical, but rather sort of personal, right? Like the, the history of you as an individual, or like take Clockwork Orange. Here's an interesting case where uh, the idea of the movie is to treat somebody's 
lapses in moral judgment by conditioning them conditioning them so much so that every time they think of an evil thought, they will have a sick feeling in the pit of their stomach. And I take it the assumption there is that you will come to associate immoral with like immoral acts with your own wrongness judgment. At the end of the movie, say, um, he fully knows the reason that he is sick at the pit of his stomach every time he thinks of like raping somebody or violently acting. I think that in that movie, he cannot be convinced of the truth of, of the immorality of an act because it's so obvious to him where his feeling comes from. That is, I think you would have to erase the memory of the treatment, right? So you have to erase the memory that you were treated for that in order to make it really stick. Because if it's completely salient to you that every time you think of raping somebody, you get a sick pit in your, like a sick feeling, you might think, oh, this is wrongness. Um, but if you know, it's just conditioning. So then why, if that's true, if what you're saying is true, number one, like, why weren't all behaviorists never able to be convinced that any of their moral judgments were true, right? Because behaviorists always thought that they were being conditioned. By that reasoning, it's like, well, given that they know they're being conditioned by outside external and by their external environment, then they should never be in a position to to know that any of their moral judgments are true. And, like, given that most people aren't behaviorists anymore, but, I mean, so many of our moral beliefs are the result of some kind of sophisticated conditioning. Like, we haven't, well, so, even you would agree that we haven't reasoned our way towards the majority of our moral judgments, right? And even the way right. we reason is conditioned in part by our by our own personal histories. I, I totally agree with you. I, I think, but one, uh, behaviorists would very happily say there is no truth to their moral claim. Right. Like, I mean, this okay. was, right. this was, they bit the bullet. Yeah. Um, uh, in, in fact, they bit the bullet in ways that Kahan says Singer is unwilling to do, <laughs> which is, right. Yeah, because um, he just wants to debunk some of it. He doesn't want to debunk yeah. all of it. Whereas, yeah, I recommend actually for those interested in our discussion with Sam Harris and why we we're pushing him on this particular meta-ethical point about yeah. why care at all, uh, the, the paper by Guy Kahan has a nice discussion of, I think, what we were trying to get at, perhaps unsuccessfully. Yeah. I also um, would recommend, I have this series of blog posts on Eric Schwitzgibble's Splintered Mind that I might have linked oh, yeah. to a long time ago or not called oh, on debunking. We'll link to it. There's like, I oh, have like okay. a four-part blog post on debunking. And actually... Although Kahan doesn't, he ref, he refers to that in the paper, but not by name. He just says, I'm grateful yeah. to Tamler Summers here. But that's what he's yeah. talking about in the paper. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't think we've linked to that before. Um, so your other question, it really matters uh, what you think the history of your conditioning is, I think. Like, here's, here's a boring way of changing your mind about about morality, which is... One, one reason that you might no longer believe a moral thing that you used to believe is simply that you used to believe in God and God said it was wrong, and now you no longer believe in God. And you know yourself fully well that the only reason you believed it was wrong was that God said it was wrong. So there, it would be tri like, you know, my, your mind could be changed just by dint of, of you used to think that was the only reason. Yeah. Um, but there are other things that, that kind of linger, and, and I think I've used this example before that— um, I was raised to believe that putting another book on top of the Bible was wrong. Now I don't. I no longer believe that, 
but I find it very hard to leave a Bible on the floor or to put another book on top of the Bible. I, it's hard for me to shake the feeling that I'm doing something wrong. Right. But the knowledge that this is simply a result of like the training that I had makes me reject the, the, the explicit belief, even though I can't shake the gut reaction that it's wrong. Yeah. Um, so I know the causal history of it, and I no longer have an additional reason to believe it to be true. Right. If I still believed that God existed and thought that, um, I might be aware of the, co- the conditioning, the causal conditioning, uh, and that wouldn't undermine it because I, it, there's another leg for it to stand on. Right. So um, that's a good example because I think it also points to a level of complexity, which is it might be that we can't shake a feeling, but we yeah. can, we do have an ability through our reason, congratulations, uh, that, uh, well, that this is not years. a feeling that we should trust. This is not a feeling that should necessarily guide our actions, or or certainly it's not something that we should Im, Im, impose on other people. Um, it's just a feeling that we have that we that we can't shake. Um, right. It's the debunking that takes you from th- having the feeling and thinking that feeling is justified to that to to what I just mentioned, having the feeling, but right. realizing that although it psychologically has a hold over you, it doesn't reflect anything that's true in the realm right. of values. Okay, so here is a case now, let's take the opposite, where I'm not at all bothered by debunk. Like, so the causal history explanations don't at all bother me. And I don't know if these are, are values. These are just preferences. Like, So I actually uh, prefer vanilla ice cream to chocolate ice cream. Or I, I prefer... Um, a certain aesthetics in people I'm sexually attracted to. Right. You could tell me, don't you know that the reason you like like uh, women who have these qualities is simply because evolution endowed yeah. you with this sort of like hip to waist ratio, like bullshit. And I, I'm like, eh, like that's yeah, interesting. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Like now, can we have sex? Yeah. Like, or, or whatever, you know, uh, there is like, I don't at all feel as if the belief is undermined, but because the, the belief is not real. I mean, it's, it's just a, it's a simple preference that it matters little to me when I like something, um, or right. Or dislike it. It matters little what the causal history is. Uh, yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't motivate me to, to do anything. So, so one difference, one of the possible differences between those two scenarios is that in one case, you might have a more objectivist way of framing the value judgment. Yeah. Putting a Bible or putting a, another book on a Bible is actually wrong, whether you think it's wrong or not. Whereas yeah. like women with big breasts are attractive or something like that is something that you think isn't necessarily an objective value judgment. And yep. if somebody isn't into that, it's not like you think they're wrong. So so it's it's possible that debunk now I actually think this is complicated, but it's possible that debunking arguments are going to be at their most effective for things that you take to be objective truths rather than personal preferences. Right. And so here's the complexity to it, because on the one hand, we have the geometry and math arguments that are that exemplify objectivity. Yeah. Right. Where I say they have no power. Debunking arguments have have to me no power over those beliefs because they are truly so objective. 
On the other hand, I have the entirely subjective preferences that I don't think other people necessarily should endorse. But then you have this middle ground where we seem to be, in some cases, have a, we have a lay objectivist theory of truth with very little supportive evidence for that belief. Right. And that seems to be where a lot of morality lies. Yes. So, so yeah, I agree. It's, it's that sort of middle area for value judgments. And, you know, like as somebody who's less objectivist about value judgments than, than you are, maybe that could explain why debunking arguments might not be as much of a threat for somebody who is fairly expressivist, uh, That's about right. their their value judgments to begin with. On the other hand, I actually think that they can work sometimes with value judgments. Like, uh, uh, although it's tricky exactly as to how even judgments that seem like they ultimately boil down to personal preference, it might make you sort of question your preferences and whether your preferences are good for you in some sense. So, like the example that evolutionary psychologists use. If you're, you know, if you've been married, happily married for like, uh, and then you find yourself being attracted to like a younger person at work or something like that. And you learn that this is something maybe like just take the caricature of evolutionary. This is something that's just built into you, you know, to like be at a certain age, men are going to be attracted to women who are more fertile and their wives who they're happily married to are not fertile. And so they become, so, so the judgment may be that like, I ought to sleep with this woman might be undermined by learning the history like you might think if you had no knowledge of it, oh, I'm attracted to her because she's my new soulmate, you know? Like So when you t- when you say judgment, do you mean that the desire itself is undermined or do you not mean the, that desire. the judgment that do- Okay, cuz the, the desire can't right, right? It would yeah, never be undermined in this case. The right? judgment like, I want, say like, that like high fat this is something that, that that you yeah. should act on the desire maybe. Like you right. might think so, if you had no knowledge of the history, oh, the reason I'm attracted to her is just cuz I love her and she's my new soulmate and I'm becoming disenchanted with my wife. But then yeah. when you realize that that's, that might not be the case, right? Because this, it might right. be that your genes are fucking with you and, you know, which is sounds strange to say, especially for us, yeah. like who aren't, don't usually <laughs> like, aren't usually susceptible to naive dualism, but like that, that, but there's a way in which you can make sense of that. Right. That like, yeah, the, the, you know, this is a, the, like al- almost, <laughs> almost like a, a common sitcom plot where, where you tell the person, you know, like somebody, somebody falls in love with somebody and they're told, don't you realize that the only reason you actually think you're in love is because of the this thing that's going on in your life or that she reminds you of somebody else right. or he reminds you know exactly. and so you don't even need evolution in some cases you could say like the love you think you're feeling is simply boils down to the the uh association you have between a perfume and and some previous experience and like your feeling about the bible or whatever like it may be that you're still going to be attracted to the yeah. person but that you can sort of realize that that's not a feeling that is 
justified to act upon necessarily. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like almost like the wisdom of TV shows where you can realize, like, don't you realize that it is is because of the particular circumstances you find yourself in that you think that you need to make this decision, whether it's a romantic one or some, you know, I should quit my job um, because I've always loved art or something like that. And I should be an artist like where where the minute people point out uh, like that the wiser person points out that maybe this judgment isn't based on some deep aspect of yourself but rather a superficial one um it's the same structure as a debunking argument where you think you think it's based on your tracking the the true nature of of right and wrong but in fact it's just because of what what you know and maybe it's like the thing that what counts as right or wrong in these cases are best for you or best for you all things considered or something exactly right it's like a value about about what's important in your life that it that you kind of realize that you don't even re, you don't even think it's important when you when it's pointed out to you that that the causal forces um, that gave rise to that presumed value are actually ones that you weren't aware of and that you realize are silly. Right. right? So then um, that and that's the key is like because like you said sometimes like if you tell me. Like my judgment that Scarlett Johansson is beautiful, oh, that's just because of some, you know, you give me some like evolutionary psychology or whatever, or just personal like, just conditioning, explanation. Right, yeah. Like my mom didn't breastfeed me for long enough or something like that. Right. Then it's going to be like, okay, that like that's yeah. interesting, maybe a little weird, but uh, it doesn't, it's not going to affect my judgment of her attractiveness. But it, but like there are other times where it will, it can affect your judgment or at least to what extent you think that judgment is justified. Like it wouldn't even affect my judgment that like it's justified, like it's totally justified as far as it goes. (laughs) So it's a really, this is why I think this is a fascinating top kind of underexplored topic. There's so many dimensions to it. Yeah. And it, it does point to. I think importantly, like the things that tend to be undermined really have to rest on some sort of, uh, on one, on the one hand, lay objectivist view, and on the other hand, uh, inability to verify that these in fact are true things. Right. It's it's in right. It's to right independently that sweets. Yeah, to independently what those things are might. You know, so the power of a debunking argument might just, in some cases, it might be powerful sort of psychologically for some individuals and not for others um, because they hold, because like you and I, maybe we have certain views on, on the, the, the objective nature of morality. So some, some things that might not matter to you at all, you just continue to believe them uh, because you never thought that they were reflecting something deep. Right. right. <laughs> like, you're right. just like, no, like, I, I know that it is purely cultural value that whatever, I love money or something. Um, like, well, this, I, is, <laughs> this is an example like some people will try to debunk love by saying that, oh, it's yes, only due to exactly. some, you know, cultural feature of your history or some evolutionary explanation. And it's like, okay, but I still love them. Like, I didn't think that love was like a union of two souls in the first place. I always thought it was 
built, you know, like a, <laughs> right. an, a an amalgam of your desire, like constituted by your desires and feelings, and and the history of those things don't isn't going to undermine that. Because, but for somebody else who had a fancier view of love, and I think this could work for substitute free will for love, or. Yeah. Uh, or like, you know, morally right for for love. Like if you have a fancier view of you, of those things, then then the, the story can either be de- debunking or cause you to revise your concept. Right. It's interesting that you, that you pointed that out. Um, the case of love, because it's so reductionist arguments in psychology are just a form of a debunking argument right? right like usually they're like the reason that they have at least that force to them is because people i think assume when you point out that um that well whatever prairies have this like you know neuropeptide that also causes human beings to be attracted to each other it was knowing this somehow should undermine the feeling you have toward your spouse well right. I, I suppose if you had a particular view of what love was, that this would undermine um, <laughs> your right? view of love. That di- like love can't involve neuropeptides. Like, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But it is funny that it does have that force for, for a lot of for people, some people. Yeah. from the get go. Like the, it seems as if what I usually have to do is disabuse people of the notion that reductionism yeah. or that re- reductionist arguments are debunking. Right. Um, and I don't know why that is, whether it's just a pattern matching, like in other cases where I find out the causes, it's obviously right. Like, um, you know, I mean, I, I honestly know. think like the Libet studies are based on like a version of this where people be like, oh, no, you didn't make the decision because like your brain started making it before you were aware of it or something like that. You yeah, know, yeah, so a, many a, neuroscience studies <laughs> are sort of based on this kind of implicit dualism that suggests that like you thought before that your brain was just not involved in right. your choices. And so those debunking arguments, I think, do do a good job of pointing out exactly what it was that you believed to begin with. Right. In the case of the Libet studies, it's like, well, turns out what you believed in is this weird conception yeah. of, of freedom like that it would require. But, you know, it's 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 always weird to me because it's not as if people when you point out that like Seurat's paintings are actually made of little dots, they don't go, oh, here I thought it was human beings all along, like <laughs> <Right>. by a lake. <laughs> like nobody says that, right? <laughs> like it's just the case that obviously it is both things. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't want to get too snobby about like people who, who are susceptible to that because I think I used to be way more than I am now too. When you were a nouveau smart. When I was new, back when I was nouveau smart, exactly. <laughs> that I would see like studies like the Labette study and be like, more evidence that there's no free will. Whereas now I think that that's just totally irrelevant. The idea that that would undermine, or there was another study that was talked about at the conference where people could make predictions about what you would choose to do with 60% right. accuracy seven seconds before you chose it. Uh, right. Well, okay. But like number one, it's sixty percent accuracy. Number two, like I like I've seen poker players who knew what I was gonna do long before I did, you know. And that doesn't right. mean that I didn't make a decision to do the thing. It just meant that they were good at good at predicting what it was that I was gonna choose to do based on my body language or my you know whatever. Yeah, and I, I'm trying to get at the, the the difference is is I think that people have a very very 
strict deterministic view of particles causing thoughts and yeah. a very probabilistic view of reading body language and really like right you know it's it's That's but one exact- of the things that it forces you to do is um, and I think this is why pedagogically it's important. And I, I, I try to stress this like levels of analysis and reductionism and what it means to to undermine something is that it forces you to think about what your positive conception is. So yeah. uh, the, the, the free will stuff, it's like it forces you to say, well, so what kind of thing uh, would be required for me to have such that an experiment would demonstrate it, for instance, right? Like what kind of experiment would show that you have the kind of free will that you thought you would have? Right. And it's like, well, I don't know because I guess I didn't believe that it was like, I I didn't really believe that it was like some ghost in the machine thing going on. Right. But like kind of, yeah, you did. You did. You absolutely (laughs) did. What is the experiment that would demonstrate that we did have that free will? And of course there's no experiment that would do that. No, no. And that means exactly, exactly. And this gets back to my earlier point about reading these articles. It's hard to think about debunking arguments in general and what, whether they're successful or not, because it boils down to what it, what it might say about the specific uh, beliefs yeah, and there are there are so many things about the specific beliefs that matter. But this is why I think it's valuable because it actually will flesh out that the those things that actually matter and don't matter about the specific beliefs, right? Like, how much are you relying on some lay theory of objectivity about aesthetics that you didn't know you were relying on? Right, right, exactly. Um, and that might yeah. change your opinion of it just yeah. knowing that, even if you didn't have some sort of implausibly objectivist analysis of whatever the domain of judgment is. One thing that I think uh, Doris points out at the beginning, and he says it about himself, is that there is something seductive about genealogical arguments, especially when you might be inclined already to sort of be suspicious of that the truth of that. So you are going to be jumping on genealogy. So... There's also that quality that you should sort of look out for. I noticed this when I was, like, the free will thing is so up my alley, right? Like, that was perfect. Yeah. It was beautiful. And meanwhile, like, Saul Smolansky and, like, other sort of incompatibilists are like, this is bullshit. Anyone can come up with, like, a genealogy and just, like, it's just a just-so story. And the real thing that you right. have to do is look at the arguments. And I think there's truth to both of, like, our reactions. On the one hand, it's true. You have to be very suspicious of people cherry-picking <laughs> histories to undermine the judgments. But on the other hand, you can't just look at the arguments because that it just assumes that your core convictions aren't influenced by your cultural history and your you know, personal this, history. And that's just false. Do, yeah, has anybody done this? this? This makes me think that there might be utility in using debunking arguments as... Uh, not an implicit measure, but as sort of a, a, a discovery for which attitudes, like wh- how you view the world um, in these particular domains. So, right. so I'm imagining sort of a way of saying like, hey, uh, do you like chocolate ice cream? Did you know that it turns out that people from this part of the world like chocolate more than people from this part of the world because of this particular genetic variant in their tongues, right? Yeah. Uh, now, th- does this make you not like or not care anymore about, or not argue, or whatever. Um, is that no and, longer and your favorite? You, Does this make it less no longer, your right. favorite flavor of ice cream? Yeah, or, like that. Yeah, right. Um, 
and uh, and then work your way up, right? And it, yeah. and like you could do cross domains, or you could do sort of within morality different kinds of views. Like, how defensive do you get when you hear a genealogical argument uh, about yeah. one of your one of your cher- cherished beliefs? And how much or, does or it affect? You know, like, do you start to get skeptical of it once you hear the genealogy behind right. it? Right. Like, isn't a lot of clinical psychology? I mean, of course, psychoanalysis is a little about this, right? Once you're given a sort of a history of why you do the things that you do or you act in the way that you act, that's going to cause you to rethink whether those things are are wise or not. And that says yeah. something about how you how you think about those kinds of behaviors. It's it's complicated. I it's not it's not most clinical psychology it's psychoanalysis specifically yeah. and not just freudian psychoanalysis but psychotherapy, psychotherapy that's been influenced by psychoanalysis um yeah. um but but yeah you're you're now forcing me to talk about the fact that i was watching the sopranos and like that's exactly it right where it's get to the root cause of why you believe this and the root cause is hidden so that is yeah. you, the reason that you actually uh, treat your kids this way is because of the way your mom treated you you thought that it's because you were engaged in best practices and you read Dr. Spock's book and you, you know, whatever. Right. It's actually because of this that your mom treated you. And, and Freud had a, an almost magical view of what happened when you made that realization, yeah. right? That is, um, the physical symptoms of his early patients, this is what he built his stuff on, is once you realize the root cause, that symptom will go away, Yeah. right? So you had a, you had, uh, glove paralysis which is impossible physically because of the way the nerves are that means your your hand was completely numb let's get down to these stories your dreams and you realize the true psychoanalytic depth sort of where this comes from and then it magically goes away that is always in the great analog for what therapy is trying to do yeah. and you can imagine tony saying well i don't care tony soprano again yeah. this is my uh, saying i don't care if the reason that i think my son should work harder is because my mom was so harsh, right? Um, Kahan kind of points to this. Like, you know, I don't remember the example that he uses. Imagine that the reason that you're writing this book on honor is because you felt really sort of like dissed when you were a kid. Yeah. Well, maybe. <laughs> Sounds like, right. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> but hopefully that has no bearing upon the truth of your claim. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, I think that... There's no getting around the fact that how people evaluate the truth of my arguments in that book is going to be colored by their own personal experiences and histories. I mean, this gets us back to kind of standpoint epistemologies and like that kind of thing. We don't want to go down that road necessarily yet, but this is where these two topics intersect is that it's you're kidding yourself and it is a this is a conceit of analytic philosophy to think that you can somehow abstract yourself from your own personal history and experience and just analyze moral arguments on a completely objective plane right that's just We're, you're fooling yourself yeah well i like it i don't i think it turns on whether you believe that moral moral claims are more like geom- geometric claims right um, right. So you. Yes. Right. And I but, don't. So and you don't. So, so it's, it's obvious to you that it's all just <laughs> it's a conceit. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I wanted to say, like, right before there is this sort of obvious um, this obvious thing that would undermine all of this discussion, which is that if uh, if if there were some debunking argument about, say, human cognition in general. Right. 
like like math. Then this discussion would actually be itself undermined. Like there's like no point in trying to arrive at the truth of the matter because what we are saying that we believe is the very thing that we cannot do. Right. We, so <laughs> I, I think there's a version of this out there already, like with logic, right? Like, you know, people say like we we because of our cultural history have a very specific conception of logic. And uh, that's not the only conception of logical reasoning that you could have. You know, there's fuzzy logics and various other kinds of logics. And therefore, like, you know, we shouldn't think that just because something is a valid form of inference, inference that that leads us to think that, that, it's, that it's true or well-supported. But of course, we're using that logic to just make that point in the first place, to, 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 yeah. to mount that argument in the first place. So there is something self-undermining about that. Yeah. They're right. Right. And you get, you get, you get to Zen sort of ways of, of accepting the paradox maybe. Right. Uh, but I don't, I think computers, computers prove that logic works. You're just so going to be a cultural chauvinist for, I mean, well, no, I mean, it just, <laughs> I guess this is, I was making a joke, but it is yeah. a more sophisticated view of what, what constitutes sort of the truth, like the, the, what something, what makes something true. And sometimes if it works, if this form of logic is more likely to lead to computers, yeah. um, that, that, right. Then I'm like, yeah, like maybe, maybe I don't, I don't need to call it true, but I at least want to be on, on, on this side of, of the truth debate. <laughs> I, I, corresponds corresponding to like iphone creation so it must be <laughs> essentially essentially so. i mean this week we could probably get into this a little bit with uh, robert wright i think so because there's there's discussion of evolution discussion of of accepting he's an evolutionary debunker way. yeah um right and and so he endorses that that beliefs ought to be rejected by dint of their evolutionary origins which I, I got to say, like, I, I'm all for discarding some of my beliefs because of that. Yeah. But not all. Yeah. yeah. Not all. <laughs> and uh, that's and the interesting question is, as we've said, where you draw the line. So. Right. So can we can yeah. I come full circle to your at the end of the first segment to your claim that, no, it just is weird that some men want to to uh, uh, have yeah. lactate. It's, lact <laughs> it's been thoroughly debunked. Is it is it the case that this illustrates that uh, you are somewhat an, of an objectivist about <laughs> about the the truth of lack the sexiness of lactating? Yes, like, and I'm not an objectivist about like sexiness in general, but that particular <laughs> thing. Uh, there is, there is. Yeah. like, there's just I, a few facts, just just patch of facts about sexuality that okay. are objectively true like i give you that hot. one yeah. i give you that one yeah and i am gonna give myself one that you're not allowed to debate since i didn't debate you and that is that the lakers of the 80s were objectively better than the celtics of the <laughs> we're gonna have to have this discussion because i'm in the <laughs> middle of this celtics lakers best of enemies documentary <laughs> um uh, i i it's, you know, I mean, if fandom is an interesting example, right? There's no way that you would have that judgment if you didn't grow up in L.A. And exactly. There's no way that I would have the, 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 the contrary judgment if I hadn't grown up in Boston, right? Like, that's just clearly both of us just 
recognize and accept that that's why we have those beliefs about who was objectively better and more likable in the in those years but like that doesn't affect that we think it that doesn't undermine <laughs> yeah. that we think it you know you know what it does do is it makes me very very suspicious of people like my dear colleague tom gilovich who is a wonderful human being and i love him who grew up in california as a celtics fan yeah uh, there is where I'm just like, hey, that's it's, it's I, even I don't like, I don't support that. <laughs> we don't want you. <laughs> don't you know that it's not it's not that it is a spurious uh, uh, liking of the team. It is that that what constitutes how you ought to like a team. Yeah, exactly. Uh, same is true in, Argent in Argentina. If you're born in a certain neighborhood and your friends are all fa fans of one soccer club, uh, you're just. I have a cousin who changed his mind when he was five and he's never heard the end of it from his friends like traitor. It's truth tracking like where <laughs> you're from like tracks the truth of what team you should root for. But not everybody <laughs> believes that. In fact, you know, you get these academics who will say it's so irrational to just like a team just because that's <laughs> where you're from. It's like you don't get sports if you think that you don't get you don't understand sports and you don't understand like they're. Yeah, value and role. It's, it's it's good to to mingle with the common man <laughs> every <laughs> once in a while. Yeah, <laughs> academics should try it. All right. Well, this was a good discussion, I think. And I hope so. We thoroughly debunked all of my beliefs. But of course, yeah, we would think that this was a good. Discussion. I am now an I am now a nihilist. <laughs> it's about time. <laughs> Where's my truth tracker? Join us next time, and, and I think it will be with Robert Wright.